let's talk science. From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Marco and I'm very happy to be presenting today's episode, which I have to admit is one of my favorite episodes we've recorded so far. Today's guest is Siko de Knecht. He's a neuroscience PhD student at the University of Amsterdam. Our conversation, however, did not touch upon his current epilepsy research at all, but rather we talked about academia. On a more meta level, we talked about academia's most pressing issues, and Siko has done so for quite a while. Siko is an active participant in the so-called rethink movement of university stuff, and he's also a very prolific writer for the internet journal The Fousey. I will make sure to have links to some of his blog posts in the show notes, and sorry to all the Dutch listeners if I'm completely mispronouncing these Dutch words. In 2015, last year, he was elected Man of the Year by Folia, which is the University of Amsterdam's university newspaper. So, to say the least, Siko is a very active voice in the much-needed debates and discussions concerning academia's most pressing issues. And I'm very happy that our podcast can become a medium that contributes to this discussion. So, without much further preamble... I hope you're going to enjoy the conversation Edwina and I had with Siko de Knecht. I don't know how much Trudy has already told you. We are honor students here. Yeah, that's why they're Third-year psychology students. Okay. Right, and we have these seminars twice a year where we pick different themes, right? Mm -hmm. So we started with the classification issue in science, moved on to... Um, you solved that. We, we, we solved that clearly, that there was an easy one. Yeah. We moved on to what was the topic of last, the, the previous week's seminar? Um, healthism. Healthism, yeah, right. Mm. Um, and this time we're looking at the, I guess, issues when, within academia, financialization of academia, the publication pressure, yeah. the, you know, the, the long list of these issues. Yeah, so we, we thought you're coming up. It would be nice to have a little podcast going on because the, the fact is that we find these seminars often quite helpful, mm -hmm. but we're 35 honor students and we're like 350 psychology students. So a lot of people don't have access to what we did discuss. So some of us, we send around the syllabi with all the readings okay. and stuff, but it would also be nice to be more transparent via podcast and say, hey, just to spark the interest. That's what we're discussing. Maybe yeah. you want to follow up on some of that. Yeah, but so, they're but they're not allowed to join in. They're not really allowed to join just because they're, they're the capacities, right? So they, yeah. there's one teaching staff for 35 students. Yeah. If it would be 350, then again it would only be a lecture hall again. It would be exactly the same as always. Yeah, yeah. as always. So, um, but so what we did is we collected questions from our fellow honor students, mm -hmm. right, and. I looked at them, and... They were boring. 
and there was <laughs> and I made up new ones <laughs> so I thought to, to give our conversation a bit of context um, we could start with the observation that it has become more and more obvious that sort of this ivory tower science mm. producing infallible knowledge is not the real world of science which is often much messier yeah. much more disorganized um, than we thought or hoped and so looking at all these questions from the students I don't know how much ground we'll be able to cover in the short conversation but I feel that they sort of distill into two overarching concerns or questions which are why doesn't science work as it should <laughs> and the second one what can we do about it both on an individual and institutional level um, but I think maybe it would be nice before we go into specific questions to ask you why you're interested in all that stuff ah. right what sparked your interest and why do you think maybe other people should also be interested in it yeah. I think the funny answer to that is that I was doing a honors course in my second year or even first year when I did uh, when I started my uh, my bachelor's in psychobiology that is I think 2006 we're talking so it's 10 years ago and I was invited to join an honors module and uh, together with me there were like seven other people which were that's roughly two percent of the class at that time and there were, there were two very enthusiastic teachers uh, who wanted to develop this honors module and well they did the best they could but in the end it wasn't really a very good course and that was because well for example this was their their first time and also the first time in our faculty i think anybody tried something like this and also they had very different expectations from what we were going to do than the students had because we were fresh out of high school and really used to being served everything on a platter and uh, anything on the side is only fun and they thought they were going to write an article with us so to give an illustration of this, the first or like the second time we uh, were to meet, they, uh, they asked us, uh, we were going to talk about uh, immunology and about this hypothesis that if you, uh, if you don't get exposed to a lot of pathogens, you build up some kind of resistance and then a resistance, resistance against yourself. That's, the, that's one of the hypotheses out there. And they asked us to find us some articles that can prove this point. And so we went out and next time around we came back and uh, somebody had cut something out of, out of a newspaper. I had an article from online from Uwe van der Wolf and somebody else came with another popular science article and they realized, and, oh, no, we meant scientific articles. But we had never even looked up scientific articles. We had no idea how that system even worked. That was for us a, a dimension that we had never traversed into. So all the students were completely baffled by the questions that were asked and the the response that we got from the teachers and okay so that was a hard school hard for them for them to learn i think and also for us um but then i realized over the course of that uh, that module that nothing really seemed to change the, the 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 goals were not different the type of education we got wasn't very different and i was also starting to wonder why is this now called honors education because it apparently isn't so much different from anything else if anything it's a little bit worse than what i have normal regularly and that's when i joined the the oc that's the educational committee i guess you have one of the uh, one of them yeah. as well and um 
because I was interested in, well, okay, so who is in charge of the quality and the level uh, over here? And apparently I have a say in this as a student, so why not join that committee? And I saw that my very own course came by and there had been an evaluation by the teachers themselves, not by the students or anybody else, not even a third person, saying everything went well, it was wonderful, and we're going to continue doing this until the next year. And that's when I decided to speak up in that uh, in that lecture hall, uh, sorry, in, in that meeting, saying, yeah, actually it sucked. It, it kind of sucked. And I wouldn't advise anybody to follow this course. And I would not actually agree with giving credits for this course because it's really crappy. And uh, from there on, I simply became involved with more of this uh, student politics kind of matters and uh, on a, a lot of different levels. So I have a, a couple of more stories like this and th things that I got involved in. Um, but during my, my, my bachelor's, I kept being involved in these kind of things. And right after, um, I was asked to be coordinator of a bachelor's program for a while uh, to stand in for somebody who was on uh, maternity leave. And uh, I love that. Uh, a lot because you ha I could directly influence what was going on in my own bachelor's program uh, and it had a lot of issues so um, we were, I was able to change a couple of things there and well I, I did my master's and then I did that coordination job again <laughs> and from there on I went into uh, the, my PhD and I kept seeing the same types of issues but now on different levels so basically that well, that honors module was an opening shot and uh, my realization of okay, so yeah, you you may you may say that this is good education or that this is uh, the most excellent or whatever, but I I really would like to see it and uh, be proven that it is actually excellent as you are calling it, and that's why I kept following the news and uh, and uh, different policies at my university within my masters within the PhD uh, or surroundings etc. So it's since then always been somewhere in the uh, in the vicinity. Okay. Could you highlight a couple of things that some of the most obvious problems that you've encountered along the way and that, that are most current to you at the moment, looking most at current. academia? Yeah, so I recently published an article with a, a language scientist from here, actually, from Groningen, Martijn Wieling, um, where in, in which we responded to a report by the Royal Academy of Sciences, and they were stating that the PhD system, as we have in Holland right now, uh, works. It is actually the title of their report, Promovere Werkt. And um, for this, they interviewed professors and people from the top of the bill, CEOs from uh, Philips, Nestle, and like large companies. And they did not interview a single PhD or postdoc which are by now, if you combine the two as a group, that's 50% of all scientists around. And I can say that's about 80% of, or maybe even 90% of academic output that comes from these people. But they were not interviewed. And then the Royal Society says, yes, this is an excellent system, it works. We need more PhDs, we need to uh, make sure that they do their PhD in an even shorter amount of time. We can even bring back the PhD uh, in, for example, social sciences from four to three years. That might be just about enough. Uh, there's a called a PDN, a PhD in engineering. We can do that in two years, no problem. And uh, all the while, yes, and they need more output. They need to produce more. So we're basically creating a system which you, in which you pluck young scientists to the maximum that you can get for as little money as you can spend. 
And yes, your output will go up. But the question is whether the scientists that are going to be the result of that system are the types of scientists slash uh, teachers that you want to have in a total scientific system. So for quite a long time, I've known that there were these problems about financialization of research and the way that the money is handed out and distributed, etc. And I wasn't really focusing on what the deal was with PhDs and postdocs. But now... I've come to realize that since all the money, especially from NVO, the Dutch scientific organization that goes to universities and institutes to do research, is basically spent on PhDs and postdocs, we are the, the, the problem is way closer than I thought. And nobody is changing it. And nobody is making sure that this system is sustainable. It's the quite opposite. We're making it worse and worse and worse. And the people who are sort of investigating this thing at the Royal Society, wisely choose not to ask the people who are directly involved. So this I see as one of the major issues in, uh, in, in not only in uh, research, but also in education, because you have to realize that I, as a PhD candidate, only have to teach for about 10% of the time. Hmm. And that can even vary across disciplines. Sometimes it's 50, sometimes it's zero. But if you want more teachers that are have a background in research, which all the universities are, are screaming at the top of the lungs, they're saying, we want research-based education. You're not going to make it when you only have PhDs. And postdocs are even worse because they don't teach at all. They just come into your, uh, your, your, your group. They do a lot of research and they even sometimes leave two years before their complete project is actually finished. And then what you're left with is like a group of aging people who are get, getting further and further away from the students and the, the PhDs as well. But they get a lot of pressure from, uh, from upstairs that they should give as much education as they could, but yeah, they also should publish as many articles as they can. So you're creating this weird... So if you, for example, I'm trying to visualize this for a podcast, of course, but I think everybody has at one point learned in geography that uh, there's something like a pedigree or something uh, in which you can see the, the demography of a country. So if you just split up the demography of a country by age, if you go to a third world developing country, it's like a Christmas tree or a pyramid. It's very broad at the base and the, the, the higher up you get, the older people are and the less people there are, they're older because you just don't have them, they, they, they die. And in a civilized country, as we like to call it, it's always a very straight, almost a cylinder. Well, the system in scientific research is basically a Christmas tree where somebody took a big band or something and, 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 and strung it very tightly across the middle. There is no middle ground. So there is also ample, uh, there's, there's not enough good supervision of the PhDs themselves and not of the postdocs. And the people at the top are busy doing all kinds of other things, namely collecting money for new research so they can hire more PhDs. And this is a self-perpetuating system. And the only thing you can do as an individual in that system is do exactly like everybody else is doing. There's no reward for you if you want to say, okay, no, uh, I, have, I have a grant and I can take in four PhDs. Let's just take two people who are a bit older, a bit more experienced, but they're more expensive. Let's do that for continuity. Then you will have less output. So there's no reason for you to do that because your institute director or your dean or whoever is going to tell you you did not produce enough this year. 
Okay, so fair enough. If someone walks in now, though, and says, well, yeah, yeah, the, these problems can be e easily solved, we just shift the incentives, the monetary incentives towards teaching, and or we balance it, publication and teaching. We introduce some new metrics, and a couple of these questions were also related to maybe, you know, maybe we can move on to the how. How would we fix yeah. it? Okay, we diagnosed it now. Just the incentives are the problem, aren't they? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So the, the assumption there is that we have figured out what the problem is. I don't believe that yet. Hmm. Uh, I think on the Science in Transition seminar this uh, this year, somebody from the Ravna Institute, Barend van der Meulen, presented a very nice uh, research that they did. So they basically at the Ravna research research. It's fun. And they, uh, they in this in this case they were talking about Chinese plates, and that's the, the the balancing act in which you have all these very thin sticks on which you try to balance plates in the circus. And he was comparing this act with the way that a dean of a faculty has to allocate money, which is just very difficult to get keep everything going. And he was basically trying to debunk this thought that the incentives, which we also call perverse incentives are coming from the ministry or from huh, from the government. He's, he was basically making the point, well, if you really look at where the perverse aspects come into play, it's at the, at the faculty level. And basically, it's a lot, of, a lot of the times that is universities are trying to sort of, well, guess at what the, uh, the government wants them to do and tries to optimize what is being told. So if, for example, the, the ministry is going to give you money for each diploma that you uh, give to a student, then they're going to try to maximize the number of diplomas that you give to students. And the same thing goes now for PhDs. It's becoming more and more uh, more pronounced that it's it, you get 90,000 or 80,000 euros from the government for each diploma that, that you give to a PhD student. And that is... 80,000. 80,000, okay. yeah. And it's the question... Uh, the ministry says that is money to pay for the infrastructure that you have at your uh, at your faculty. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to uh, give these people a desk and stuff like this, which is true. You need money to uh, keep those people mm -hmm. as an actual employee. But it's not that they're saying, so this is your incentive and you should get as many PhDs as possible so you get more money. But it is what will happen especially when a faculty or a university decides to directly give that money to the professor of a group or maybe the director of an institute. That's exactly what will happen. And you can also see that there's, there's also some fraud going on in the sense that people who don't actually come from that university or they're actually in a different country or uh, they, uh, they, they did everything in their spare time and then just need to uh, move on and get, their, get their, their bill, as we say in Dutch, their diploma, then... All the faculties are raising their hands. Please, yeah, do it with us. We don't give a crap about what the uh, the level is. We just want to give you that diploma because then we get 80,000 mm. euros. So you see that the institutes themselves are really also very... They're, I think they're very much responsible mm. for what is happening. And it is their choice as well in how much they let these incentives be visible directly at the level mm of uh, an edu like an educational program or research group. Hmm. An so, example comes to mind from a friend, and it makes more sense now in the context of what you've just described. She came to the Netherlands to do a PhD at this university, and but her native tongue wasn't Dutch. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but the position they needed was really for a Dutch speaker who would work with patients. However, they couldn't quite fill this position. But because she even brought her own funding from her oh, yeah, national that's, that's government, yeah. they just employed her, basically saying, well, you can still do our, you know, the PhD with us. And it turned out it just didn't work because of the language. There was the danger that she would even lose the funding from her national mm -hmm. government and would have to repay it because she wasn't able to data-driven research, but just literature research. And I mean, and then you have an individual, right, in her mid-20s, late-20s, being stuck in a dilemma like that. Yeah. It's really a shame. Yeah. And so you were asking about solutions. Mm. Um, we can fiddle around with these numbers and incentives all we want. But I think at the end of the day, the question is, who feels responsible for this kind of stuff? Because this this PhD candidate now has a problem. And actually, her boss actually also has a problem. And as a whole, if you think about it, we all have a problem. We have a problem that at, in the, at the end, you will see that PhD degrees become worth less and less and less and less. And that scientific output, which is very much under pressure of publication, will become less and less and less reliable. That's a problem we all have. And we see this happening. All these kinds of examples I have by now, because I've spoken about this publicly a couple of times, people keep emailing me with all kinds of examples, like loads of examples of showing this is clearly wrong. Anybody would say this is completely out of your mind crazy. But the question is, who feels responsible enough to tell his direct colleague or indirect colleague that what he or she is doing is morally unjustified? It's just insane in, in the sense of, this is not creating a sustainable system of science and education because everybody has their own responsibility. You have your own group to uphold. You have your own status to uphold. Don't forget about status because it's really important. And if as long as you can keep playing the game with any kind of rigging the game or making sure that you make little adjustments that help you, as long as you can keep doing that, everybody will do that. So you need to in this case, just need to have a moral standard and have some kind of, of vision and thought about what you want to be as a university, who you want to be as a scientist. And yeah, that's a bit harder than just simply listening to, uh, to money, I know. But uh, in, uh, on the other hand, why did you go into science in the first place? Why did you want to teach young students in the first place if it was to be like some kind of a victim or a slave to a system like that that you keep simply imposing on yourself? I will give one another concrete example. So the next time, yeah, so I'm talking to future scientists or teachers or whoever, the next time in your faculty that people are going to decide on what basis we are going to judge or grade or uh, rank people, make sure that that group of people who decides how you're going to do, do it are not only the top researchers of your institute. Make sure it's a direct cut through of the entire organization. Because yes, every organization has a couple of people who do good research and they're well known and they are in the newspaper and they get a lot of grants and money. But that is like one person versus nine others. And those nine others are not doing bogus work. They are also very important. Actually, they are more important to the system as a whole. So I will also in the lecture that's coming up mm. basically argue that we've lost interest for the most important group and removed or placed all our interest into yeah, maybe the least important group. Mm. But it, it is forming exactly how science and education work. 
And that is things you need to do yourself. And I just can't, I, I'm from the University of Amsterdam and you might have heard that it's been a, sort of a, a, a ruckus over there for the last uh, year. But the ruckus was about this, about exactly this. Hmm. Like, why are we letting this entire system slip down a cliff when we all know that it's the wrong way to go? Okay, can I play devil's advocate here for a yeah, second? Yeah, do. Um, all right, there's student protests, and in let's say there's student protests here in Groningen, right? And yeah. we say exactly that. We want to see the whole spectrum of whoever works or lives at this university represented in the university council and faculty councils. Fair enough. Okay, now the university allows more students to enter the university council. Um, but in the end, isn't that just some... Um, passive aggressive reaction to the protest because in the end these students will only fulfill an advisory role and i've heard from some situations where students are being indirectly told that as well you know you can either agree with that or disagree but yeah. in the end it's up to you know again a few selected individuals to make these decisions so and that's also related to one question that came up um Do these protests work? What has happened in Amsterdam? Would you call them successful? All right. So that's two two parts of a question, yep. right? So let let's do your first one first. That was about what we call in Dutch medezeggenschap, and you would call a works council or student council stuff like that. So you're so a lot of questions have been about uh, directed at this this topic is is it going to help if that is a better representation, etc., etc., etc. In principle, I think yes. One, one of the best ways perhaps to do it is just to do this by drawing uh, drawing tickets in a lottery. So no running for office, just making sure that you get a random sample of the entire population of your university that sits in on meetings on uh, that are actually going to decide what way to go, etc., etc. But as a whole, my extension has always been that also if you just have a normal job at a university or you're just a normal student, and you are not part of a council like that, you should also always be involved enough and feel involved enough to make a difference and to tell your teacher, hey, this wasn't right, or to tell your colleague, hey, I think we should go this direction. There's a lot of more, like, the organizations can be very creative if people at least have a say in the general daily routines and goings-on. What I find interesting, for example, when they tried to merge our faculty, my faculty, the science faculty, with two faculties at the, the Free University, they listened in on a lot of professors who were going to tell something about this. They listened in on the Works Council and the Student Council, but the rest of the entire faculty was never even heard. They never asked anybody what they would think about it. They use arguments like, yeah, PhDs, Yeah, we can involve you, but you're going to be gone in like three years anyway, so that doesn't matter. As if PhDs are not a part of this faculty and will always be and will not have a say in this. I think if you're talking about influencing and making sure you, you get a, a good result out of policy, uh, the changes that are going on, everybody should be involved and not, not in this formal way, but in the very informal way. In talking to your colleague, also if he's not directly your colleague, in just asking them or giving them information about a procedure that's going on. Why can I not, as a, uh, a teacher, talk with the person who's coordinating the program about whether or not we should have a selection uh, for master students, yes or no? 
I can be involved with that as well. I have an opinion. I work with these students. It doesn't always have to be formal. It should be, just be more and more involved. Okay, but as a PhD student... I don't um, have time for that. I don't have time. So um, why are you even here voluntarily talking to us about these issues when meanwhile you could be working on a publication? Yeah. Right. And sometimes you hear that. So what it feels like to me is that what it really takes to change the system is courage and moral, moral character at the base because you might have to risk certain things that all the time you invest into these issues and educating fellow students about this. Well, you know, you might... Is there a danger of just drying out? Um, there is, yeah. yeah. A huge danger, and I think uh, that a lot of people... And there was an article about this yesterday in The Guardian, actually, uh, talking about temporary staff at universities, so that's more on a global level. And we'll put this in the show notes. Yeah, put that in the show notes. It was, <laughs> it was a beautiful, uh, beautiful article. Um, basically saying, if we're only here temporarily, and the only thing I need to do here is advance my own career, then why the hell should I feel involved at all? And that's a very good question. And I don't, in this case, don't necessarily morally expect any, everyone to act in the, in the way that for you describe that I'm doing right now. But on the other hand, if nobody does it, then there won't be any system to defend later on. And there won't even be a system in which you can work on your career because it will never be in your advantage. So I think, I'm not sure whether there must be philosophers and philosophers like a political sci scientist who thought about these things and have words to describe them. But in general, um, what I think the student and actually also teacher protests have done at the university last year is awaken this spirit in more people than before that it is important that you, as a part of a community, in whatever role you're representative in, always speak out if it's necessary, if you think something should be better, should be changed. There, and there is no, there's only a selfish reason not to. And in the end, that selfish reason will also not help you. So it's, I would boil it down to a sustainable system of yeah. openness and transparency. Hmm. And that's the hardest thing to do in any organization, to change a culture like that. Mm. And it's very easy to destroy a culture like that. And that is why I think in the end, a lot of this energy was pointed towards the university uh, rector and uh, in the, especially the chair of the university. Because they personified the destruction of this openness and transparency uh, in the system. And sometimes then maybe this catharsis, as some people call it, can help to show, okay, there is a, w there is a way back. Mm. And I think that's what happened. It, it's happening at the University of Amsterdam slowly but steadily right now, not as fast as anyone would like. Mm. Because also those regimes are very, um, very sturdy. Mm. And uh, they, they, these, this well, class of people who, who are the, the rectors and the, um, and the chair people in uh, mm. Safe base uh, board of directors. Uh, they uh, they are very strong together. They they have each other's backs more than uh, mm. the normal teachers and mm. students have. So it's up to um, upcoming budding aspiring researchers to find that fine balance between educating oneself about these issues yeah. and leading by example as much as we can. I think so. Step by step. We're almost half an hour in, and we want to give you some time to refresh before your lecture. Oh. But is there, does something else come to mind that you would 
perhaps like to ask? Well, what comes to mind for me is that for now we are talking a whole lot about an individualized responsibility for academic students to fulfill and contribute to their part in building up academia. But I also feel there could be a collective or university-wide action that could encourage this kind of individualized responsibility. I think that's possible, but I can't exactly come to mind any specific examples. I don't know if you would have an idea, perhaps. That's difficult. I think in in the past couple of decades, um, your role as a student has changed. uh, Especially because it's now, it's getting slightly, ever more slightly more expensive to go uh, to university or to the ABO or MBO. Uh, It's becoming more and more important that you do this in a very short amount of time and uh, with as high grades as possible. The level of interest for things that are not directly the product that you are consuming, as some people are actually calling this, that level of interest dwindles. And again, we come back to this collective responsibility that you know that in the end, the thing you are buying will become worth less and less and less. So you should be, like in this market sense, you should be angry customers saying this uh, HBO Go is not working. But I would myself like more of a movement in which you show students and your employees that what is happening right now is a part of our collective and also your individual future. And there will always be some example in university politics, also in Groningen going on right now, questions about whether or not to build a new campus, questions about whether or not to merge two faculties, whether or not to impose some kind of rule that you need to study faster, because this is happening all the time. And what I've seen in the past is that normally there's not a lot of momentum to do something about these things. But as soon as you open up this can of worms and show to everybody, look what's inside this can of worms, it's actually pretty gross, then people are academically involved enough to take an interest, to take a a hard look at it, find something else, find something else, and then something can spindle out of control completely. uh, When I was in the student council 2008, there was this tiny paragraph in the uh, financial nota of the university which said that if students had uh, were doing their bachelors but they had more credits than was in the program of the bachelors, you would have to pay for every European credit. You had to pay 140 euros. We didn't actually didn't see it at first because we, that's like 40, 50 pages that you're what like 19 you've never seen something like this and then it's like this is a weird paragraph isn't it and then we yeah it's actually a weird paragraph and the student council which is very unusual uh, but we as student council in this case said to other groups like did you see this it's really weird and yeah that's really weird. and then we went national and a lot of other people joined and then we had this huge protest march march and in the end it was struck from the plans But that would not have happened if not a couple of people had just found it and then a couple of other people have checked it and then would have found out, oh, this is part of a bigger, oh, God. So, yeah, be interested. That's the only thing. But that's the only thing you're learning, I hope, at university is to be curious and to go and find out what is the the basis of something. What is the the root problem? What is the way that it ended up in the situation that it is right now? And everybody who goes to university and also to HBO and MBO has this internal drive and curiosity you just need to awaken it okay so it can happen here this is not a threat by the way (laughs) (laughs) yeah how to awaken the spirit some people might ask but that 
because sometimes it can be a bit idealistic if you're already so run down by the system, mm -hmm. by all these requirements, by having to get a certain GPA in order to get this master's degree. And I feel that especially when the 30th of our bachelor's degree and the deadlines sort of have passed or are approaching for master's degrees, and then you think about a one-year or two-year degree or doing a PhD afterwards. So mm -hmm. there are all these questions there while the courses continue, while you worry about all these things about finances, how am I going to fund my master's yeah. even? And then to now tell students, well, you know, to just, just be more curious about issues within the system that have produced your troubles right now. Yeah. But these, a lot of students might just be too stuck in there to have, you know, enough resources yeah. emotionally intellectually uh, and that, or whatever. Is, and that yeah. is something that has shifted in the course <clears throat> of about 10 years mm -hmm. really and i'm going to talk about it a bit more in this afternoon but when i started uh with my bachelor's there were only my parents who said well maybe you don't want to do philosophy because you don't won't make as much money or something mm -hmm. and then in the end i found biology a bit more interesting that was the like the biggest discussion there mm -hmm. but right now this has changed completely because I used to get some money, like in prestatiebeurs, uh, to go to university. The tuitions weren't as high. Um, I think rent in Amsterdam has always been high, but it wasn't as excruciatingly high as I, c I am hearing right now from uh, students in my class. And there wasn't this overarching dogma that you had to study as fast as possible. It was never, you had these bad examples of people who did, who took their sweet, sweet time. And actually, I have to say, there's not a lot of those, even though in those days, there weren't a lot of those people. It's, it's a myth that we used to have a system where a lot of people took a shitload of time to finish their bachelor's degrees. And by the way, they were doing other things uh, on the side that were very interesting as well. But slowly and steadily, this is something that comes from the Ministry of OCDE. They rolled out this agenda in which they're basically cutting down on any extras like a second master's. No, you got to pay for that. Uh, four years on your bachelor's is more than enough. Otherwise, you get a fine or you have to pay more. And it just became increasingly, increasingly. Uh, and the, the, the question about it all has been, was it really more expensive before? What, did the fact that student took their sweet time, as they would say, was it really that pressing on the university budgets or anything else? And the tiny amount of research that has been done on this because it's just hearsay but the tiny amount of research actually comes from the University of Amsterdam Arne Brent is over there he wrote an article saying well we looked at it and whether a student takes four or six years that the difference is tiny it really doesn't matter that much and by the way they pay their tuition so it's probably not a problem hmm. so it's a myth that it ever was a problem and it's also a very bad case in the sense that nobody has argued in any like convincing manner, manner that it that studying or going through your bachelor's or master's within a certain set amount of time is actually important. Has any well, explanatory value for what you're going to be later or what you're going to contribute to society, etc. The only thing that I can come up with is that it's probably better to have those people on the job market as fast as possible. But in quite a lot of countries around Europe, that's probably not very smart because the youth unemployment is super high. Mm. So it's, a, it's an actual paradigm shift. And those are really the hardest ones to battle. But just as mere fact that I'm telling you right now, mm. I can see you're a, a quite a, like a little bit surprised. It, nobody, for some reason, has argued this point for years, even though at the very beginning there were people saying this, but mm. just that this 
just die down. I don't know why. And they're even going in the opposite direction, right? More master's elections yeah. and Minister of Education has yeah. also pushed for that, right? And but I can also explain, if you, if you have one more minute, Yeah, why, sure. Um, why yeah, yeah I just want to be mindful of your yeah. break. But, okay. you know. No, because the thing is here, um, this, is, this is when two of these worlds collide, I think. Um, if you're going to give universities less and less money or allocate the money differently so that you have less and less teachers per student or actually more students per teacher, that's the better way to express it, then also these teachers are going to be saying, yeah, but I cannot teach so many at the same time and guarantee you the level that you need. And they themselves have some kind of pride and honor and they want to do it well. So if there's no more money coming in to have another colleague to help you, and there's more and more pressure on those students who are yelling, you need to make sure that I make it in time. I don't want any delays from you because you are mm. screwing up. Then at the end, you are left with one solution, and that is to reduce the number of people you let in. That's the only solution. And at that time, it's very interesting to see that the minister then says, as some kind of Samaritan, as like, oh, that, okay, that's fine. Yes, you can do some selection. That's beautiful. She doesn't have to do diddly squat herself. She only has to change like four lines in the law. That's all. And the universities are happy again. But in the end, you are losing sometimes 30% of students who would have been perfectly fine in a master's program like that. And you're losing them to society because they only have a bachelor's degree after that. And they have less chances on the job market. And their first income will be lower. So they pay less taxes. because, And then we will have less money from taxes to pay for education. So you're simply cutting corners. You're looking at the very short term. You're not looking at long term. But why should you if you're a minister and you're only doing the job for four years? And it, I'm sorry to say, but after now... 10 years of being quite interested in this topic and speaking to a lot of people, this is the conclusion that it buds down to. And telling those people, even those people, that when they're doing this selection, they're doing the wrong thing, they get angry because they are thinking they do are doing the right thing. Mm. And within the current situation, without the belief that anything will change, mm. they are. And that's yeah. the contradiction itself. Okay, let's wrap up on an optimistic, positive yes, note by do. perhaps sharing a couple of resources that stu interested students could use to read up on all these issues or stay informed. What would you recommend? Podcasts, books, articles, all sorts of stuff. How do you stay up to date? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, mm. So for mere figures or mere facts and stuff like this, uh, the VSNU the website, so the Vereniging van Samenwerkende Nederlandse Universiteiten, the big union, they have a lot of numbers. You, they're, but they're, as a lobby group, they're not of much use, but they have numbers that you can look up. I think some of the reports that the Rathnau Institute puts out uh, are insightful and, in, and interesting. Uh, I'm not sure whether they all, all, always have the opportunity to cover everything. It's very difficult. Um, I myself follow this Times Higher Education because it sometimes has these very nice insights. And, uh, well, the fun part about the, the protest last year is that we are left with a uh, very nice mailing list. It's called the Rethink UVA mailing list. And I think you can just join. And uh, people um, share articles with each other uh, quite often. And because people are, are foreign nationals as well, you get some stuff from the Zeitung or you get some stuff from uh, Canada and you get a bigger and broader view. Uh, I like the book uh, by uh, Colini, What Are Universities For? 
that was, uh, I think, quite influential. And the same thing for the book Academically Adrift, which is basically a research about the quality of the American uh, educational system with a couple of very striking results. Uh, that's what I read uh, a while back. And normally, uh, yeah. This morning I read the um, position paper from the Science and Transition Initiators. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's a great read also for young researchers yeah. to sort of cover basic ground. It's 30 pages long, quite long, but it's worth going through it. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think so too. I was uh, I spoke at their conference mm. last um, in March, and uh, I think uh, we are very much in line uh, with each other. But they they haven't yet invited me to be a member. I'm very okay. uh, very angry about that. Well, maybe they will hear that. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> we put um, these links in the show notes, and um, we'll see you in a few minutes at yeah. the lecture. And thank you for doing this. Cool. This podcast was a production of MindWise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Tronia. Let's talk science! I didn't know you were allowed to.